Oh man, I got a tough one this morning, folks. So y'all, y'all pray for me. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, I just um, ask for help now to be faithful and true to what you have spoken. And Lord, we, as we conclude our nearly year-long series through Journey of the Bible, we contemplate this morning heaven and hell. And I just, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to feel the weight, Lord, of these realities and give us a divine and holy urgency both for our own souls, Lord, and the souls of others, that we would take seriously, Lord, what you have spoken about the eternal destinies of all men. So help us now, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 25. And we are finishing our series this morning, the journey through the Bible, as we talk about the two final destinations of all people, heaven and hell. Um, and I just want to open this morning with a quote from uh, C.S. Lewis. It's, a, I believe, a very insightful quote. He's talking about how, since it's quite extraordinary what we believe that human beings are eternal... <laughs> And that we all have eternal destinies. That that gives an incredible weight and meaning to each and every single individual that you meet in life. And this is what C.S. Lewis said. He said, quote, It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. C.S. Lewis is absolutely right. The fact that even though life is fleeting, the fact that we are in fact eternal beings with destinies really does change the way we should look and think about one another. And what I want to do uh, this morning is 
is talk about these eternal realities. And we're going to begin by reading Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 14, the parable of the talents. And so now, if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 14. Christ said this, For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And also he who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of God. You may be seated. So what I'm going to do in two parts is I'm going to talk about hell first, and then I'm going to talk about heaven. So first, we're going to talk about hell. Hell is something that we don't like to talk about. You don't hear many sermons on it. In fact, I could probably count on one hand the number of sermons I heard about hell. There are many reasons for this. Uh, One, it seems harsh. And I'm afraid that deep down many of us were just a little ashamed about what the Bible teaches about hell. Second, it's hard for us. It's really hard to talk about hell. It's heart-rending for us to talk about hell. And the reason why it's so hard is because all of us have people that we have known and loved very deeply. Who we don't presume to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, but from the evidence that we could see, they died without Christ. And so it's dreadful to contemplate the thought of people that we know in hell. We don't want to think about it. Number three, we don't like to talk about hell because we don't want to seem like we want people to go there. And I I get that and I feel that and that's right is good. That is right and good. I I have heard those preachers 
at my university at Georgia Tech. They came on campus and the, they shook a little staff in people's faces as they were walking by on the sidewalk telling people they're going to go to hell and they acted like they were happy about it. Shame on people who talk like they're glad people are going to hell. But it is precisely because we don't want people to go there that we have to talk about it. And we do people no favors by talking about a real place, by, by knowing that there's a real place called hell where people really go, but we never talk about it. We, do, we, don't, we don't help anybody. Jesus is the person in the Bible who's talked the most about hell. And if Jesus talked about hell, we have to talk about it. And so this morning we're going to briefly, all too briefly, look at sobering truths about what the Bible teaches about hell. Um, I'm going to borrow a little bit this morning from theologian Wayne Grudem, who's a well-respected scholar. His definition is very simple. He says, hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. Hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment from the, for the wicked. Hell is from the Greek word Gehenna, which originally referred to a valley outside of Jerusalem that was used for burning refuse. It derives its name from, uh, it was called the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. And it was a place in the Old Testament of great evil and defilement where child, where child sacrifices took place and idols were worshipped. And in the prophet Jeremiah, God prophesied through Jeremiah saying that that place would be judged and it would become a, and because of the great wickedness that took place there, it would be a place where their dead bodies would burn and be eaten by the, the beasts, the wild beasts. And, and so it, it actually makes sense then that that place would later to become, would become associated with the, with the place of the, of the punishment of the wicked, and, that, and that's what it came to be. And so the, the word that Jesus used for hell is the word Gehenna, and that's what it means. And so what I want to do is rather than just spout off speculations about it, what we want to do is we just want to look at what the Bible has to say. Okay, so we're going to read a lot of scripture this morning about hell. I want you to think about these as we read them. The first question we want to ask is this. What is hell? What is hell? Answer, hell is a place of torment by fire. Hell is a place of torment by fire. Matthew 5, 21, or, or verse 22. Jesus says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. The hell of fire. Matthew 25, 41, in the, uh, the parable about his second coming, Jesus says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Mark 9, 43, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Luke chapter 16 the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man called out, he said, he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. 
Verse 27, and he said, that is the rich man said, then I beg you, Father, sit to... Uh, uh, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So there's actually more verses we can talk about, but the Bible is remarkably clear and unambiguous about this picture of hell. And that is that it is, uh, it is a place of conscious torment. It is a place where people pay for their sins in the agony of flames. And some have questioned whether there are whether these are literal or metaphorical flames, you know, I don't see a reason. I don't see a good reason why to think they're not literal, because of the the vast number of passages. For whatever reason, the the vast majority of passages that talk about hell associate it with fire. And so, I mean, I don't, I don't know why that is, uh, apart from the fact that it's just reality. But let's just. But even if we just assume for a second that they're not literal flames and it's just a metaphor, well, being tormented by flames is a metaphor for what then? A Caribbean vacation? If, even if it is a metaphor, it's a metaphor for what? Something like being tormented in agony by flames. Always burning and never dying. Always in flames, but never consumed. That's what it's like to go to hell, to reject the living God, to die in your sin. This is what St. Augustine said. He says, there is a striking contrast to our present conditions. A striking contrast to our present conditions. People will not exist before or after death, but always in death. Never living, never dead, but eternally dying. Never can a person be more disastrously in death than when death itself will be deathless. What is hell? It's a place of torment by fire. Number two, how long will people be in hell? Forever. The answer is forever. Matthew 25, verse 41 then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46. And these will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You see, the reason why I talk about all this is because the, the doctrine of hell is, is vigorously attacked today. And some people will say, well, it's, you know, it's, not, it's not eternal, you know, but... Or many people are starting to, some people have embraced what's called annihilationism, which means that they won't go to hell, they'll just be, you know, destroyed. In other words, they'll just cease to exist. But that's not what the Bible teaches. In this passage here, Jesus said, Jesus said, these will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And look, they're put in parallel together, eternal punishment and eternal life. In other words, the duration of the one is the same as the duration of the other. If, if, our life, if, our, if our life in heaven is eternal, then punishment in hell has to be eternal. They're the same. The duration is the same. It's very clear. We can't say that one is shortened and the other is, is eternal. In Revelation 14, 11, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they will have no rest day and night, these worshipers of the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. So if we are committed to Scripture, we are humbled and sober to find that rebellion against an infinite and eternal God yields infinite and eternal punishment. 
That's what it is. And see, we just, we just don't, we don't take it seriously. We don't take God seriously. We don't take ourselves seriously. We don't take life seriously. We just go about life like everything's fine. When, it, when, the, when, the whole, when the Bible says that everyone has an eternal destiny, these 70 years, if you're blessed, are nothing before an eternity, either with God or without Him, either in the joy of His Master or in outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we go about in life like there's just no big deal. When this reality changes everything, and, and He says that it's, the Bible is clear. It says that it's forever. Why? Because rebellion against an infinite and eternal God yields infinite and eternal punishment. You see, the punishment of the crime is, not, is, is determined ultimately not by just the crime itself, but by who the crime was committed against. And so, is, you know, it's one thing to, to kind of, for two kids to get in a fight, it's for another thing for a guy to punch a police officer in the face. It's another guy, it's another thing for you to try to punch the president in the face. When you sin, you're slapping God Almighty in the face. What do you think is going to happen? What do you think is going to happen when the eternal, almighty, all-powerful God of the universe who spoke everything into existence and who makes your heart beat every second and who fills your breath up with lungs every second and you don't acknowledge him or give thanks to him and you just do you? What do you think is going to happen? When we owe everything to him. And yet every day, even those who spurn him and hate him, he still wakes them up in the morning. Why? Giving them another chance to repent and come to him. But because of the seriousness of our rebellion against God Almighty, the Bible says that the punishment is forever. Jonathan Edwards, in horrifying language, really puts it like this. He says, there will be no end to this exquisite, horrible misery. When you look forward, you shall see a long forever, a boundless duration before you which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul, and you will absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. Your punishment will indeed be infinite. Why in the world would someone say something like that? Not because he wants people to go there, but because he doesn't want you to go there. And because if you flee to Christ and find forgiveness of your sin in Jesus Christ, you don't have to. You don't have to go there. How long will people be in hell forever? Number three, who goes to hell? Who goes to hell? The unrepentant. The unrepentant. Look at a few instances here. Matthew twenty three thirty three. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. If Jesus is not your supreme treasure, you'll be denied by him in heaven. That's what it says. Matthew twenty three. 
Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measures of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? What Jesus is saying here is he's talking to the Pharisees. And he he basically tells them, <laughs> Shocking, really. Jesus basically says them, how are you going to escape hell? You, you can't. What was the Pharisees' problem? Well, the, it's, it's basically this. They were self-righteous and they were hypocritical. They were self-righteous and they were hypocritical. That is that if we have a basic heart posture that says, I'm okay, but other people aren't. What is that? It's self-righteousness. That happens in the church. Of course, people pick on Christians for being self-righteous, and some are. I don't deny that. But guess what? You don't have to be in the church to be self-righteous. You can think you're perfectly fine, and all those people over there are a big mess, but I got it together. And that was the, that was the exact problem of the Pharisees. The, 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 it's the unrepentant who go to hell, but it is those who acknowledge their sin, acknowledge their brokenness, acknowledge their need of forgiveness, whom God openly forgives. But if we never come to that place where we realize I'm broken, I'm a sinner, I am rebelling against God, and unless he has mercy on me, I am destined for hell. And unless we come to that place of humility and understanding of our own sin, we can't be saved. And we play the hypocrite. Because the thing is, is there's no such person as a self there's no such thing as a self-righteous person who's not also a hypocrite. Because when you're self-righteous and you kind of look down on other people because you can't believe they think like they do or they do, they do like they do. But guess what? You do the same things. You're just an easier on yourself than you are on others. But the only ones who get in are the humble, the repentant, the sorrowful over their sin who call out to God to have mercy. What about the passage that we read about the, the servants? He says, verse 30 there, Matthew 25, He had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my, my own with interest. Verse 30, and, and then he says, And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What did he do? What did the servant do? Nothing. That's what he did. He did nothing. He had been given a, a great amount by God, and he did nothing with it. He, rather than using it for his master's purposes, the master who had given it to him to use it for his master's purpose, he took it and he buried it in the dirt. In other words, he wasted it. He did nothing with it. That's what it is. That's what it is. When, you, when we recognize who we are before God and how we stand before him, that every, every beat of our heart and every breath of our lungs literally belongs to him, is given 
to us as a gift by God. That means our whole lives belong to him. And one day we'll have to give an account before him for what we did with his stuff. And there will be many who will stand before him and the the equivalent of what they did with all that he gave them was just buried in the dirt because they did nothing with it. Nothing that mattered. Nothing that was eternal. They buried it in the sand. They buried it in the dirt of this world. They buried it in the dirt by pursuing things that doesn't matter. And Jesus will say, cast the worthless servant to the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, this is... One more. Revelation 21.8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second... If you, you see, Jesus said, whoever would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In other words, true life is found not in embracing your desires, not in you doing you. True life is found in denying yourself for Christ's sake. Why? Because the Bible says we're broken. Because the Bible says we, we have sin natures and therefore just my desires are broken. My heart, the Bible says, is deceitful. That means if I embrace my fleeting desire of sin and my love of the world over God, then that's it. I've made my decision. I've made my choice. Those who embrace the fleeting desire of sin and the love of the world over God. And, the fact, and so this is so unsettling to us. It's so unsettling to us because we take our sins so lightly. And we take our sins so lightly because we take God so lightly. We really have imbibed, somehow or another, this thought that God is a senile grandfather who just kind of smiles down and winks at everything that we do because he doesn't fully understand what's going on. God knows. He sees everything. He's watching everything. He knows. And so, what is God's attitude then concerning hell? And what should be our attitude concerning hell? And this is important before I move to the next part. Ezekiel 33, 11. Say to them as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? You see, God is pleading with people. He has given, God is patient. He wakes people up every day, giving them an opportunity to repent, to believe, to turn back from their ways, to come back to him. It doesn't have to be this way. If you will turn and believe in Christ and trust in him and follow him and find the forgiveness that he freely offers, you can't earn it. You don't deserve it. He will give it to you as a gift if you would just acknowledge it. Say, God, forgive me. Have mercy on me and change me. It's free gift. If you'll come to him, come to God through Christ. And if you do, you will find forgiveness. 
and life everlasting. And that brings us to the next part. That's a little bit easier to talk about. And that's heaven. Wayne Grudem says, Heaven is the place where God most fully makes known his presence to bless. You see, if hell is and it is indeed full of torment and agony for the unrepentant, heaven is 10,000 times 10,000 more full of joy and blessing and peace and hope and glory for those who have come to God through Jesus Christ. In Psalm 1611, the psalmist said, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see that? You see, we piddle around on this earth with little silly things that we think are pleasurable, little silly things we think are joyful. The reason why we don't pursue God like we ought because we don't really want joy bad enough. You want to know joy? You want to know happiness so pure, so holy, so deep, so lasting that it can be found nowhere else? Then it's not found in the fleeting things of sin. It's found in God Almighty who made you, who knows you. If you want real joy, if you want real happiness that actually lasts instead of these fleeting little trifles we toy with, then come to God through Jesus Christ. Because in his presence is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. The psalmist saw this in Psalm 27, 4 and said this. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And to inquire in his temple. You see, we've been talking about this journey through the Bible. And we've been talking about how... God is working through Christ to restore the world back to the way it was meant to be all along. Heaven is that place. It is our return to Eden, except it's a better Eden than before. It was a, it's, a, it's a world that as it was originally made to be, except it's even better and sweeter than that. Why? Because I really believe that we will love God in heaven more. For having sinned against him and rebelled against him and yet him graciously and mercifully forgiving us. I believe we'll praise him more for that than if we had never fallen at all. I believe that our praises in heaven will thunder louder than the angels. Because, get this, we know and we as fallen human beings will know something that the angels cannot know. What it's like to be forgiven. Because they've never needed it. But we will stand in the presence of Almighty God knowing this, that we don't deserve to be there. Forever. And our, our praises to God's mercy and kindness will thunder throughout endless ages. As we thank Him for what He has done for us in Jesus Christ. It is a world that we can barely fathom now. Our minds can't hardly even comprehend it. Paul likens it to a resurrected world. That is, just as we talked about last week, how our bodies will be raised, but there'll be new bodies. There'll be glorified bodies. There'll be bodies incapable of sinning, of dying, of growing old, of getting sick. It'll be real bodies, but it'll be resurrected bodies. In the same way, Paul says the world will be resurrected. Romans 8, 
For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The the created order will be glorified and resurrected on that last day. It'll be different. It'll be better than it will before. And this is what's, this is important because a lot of people, they think, oh, well, heaven's just going to be some kind of pie in the sky floating on clouds strumming harps. They don't want to go there. They don't know what it's like. That's not what the Bible says. The earth, the new heavens and the new earth will not, it will be spiritual, capital S, but it will not be spiritual in terms of floaty, ethereal pie in the sky. The new heavens and new earth will be more real, more solid than this earth because it's uncorrupted by sin. We will live in a new resurrected created order with glorified physical bodies. And the world itself would be more physical, more solid than ever because it's uncorrupted by sin. And we will live and we will create and we will develop and and we will bring in the full and final kingdom of God. We're a society full of people who it can even enter their mind to sin against one another. will live in perfect harmony with the God who saved them forever. It's a world we can't even fathom because we can't imagine what the world would be like without sin. First John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. If we are in Christ, we are destined for a world where everything wrong and sad will become untrue. We shall behold God's glory in its unveiled brightness. And yet, since we'll have glorified bodies, we won't be consumed by it. But indeed, we will reflect it. And the Bible says the saints will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. You see, what we see now, see, we see Christ now, but we see him by faith. We read the scriptures. We know he's coming back. We know this is the destiny because we have been forgiven of our sins in Christ. We know this is coming. But see, right now, we see it by faith and not by sight. But one day, what we see now by faith, we will see by sight. Do you realize that if you are in Christ, your own two eyes in your head right now will one day see Jesus Christ? 
and you will stand before him and you will see him in his unveiled glory with myriads and myriads of angels bowing down and singing his praise and you'll be looking at him with your own two eyes. That's the destiny for those in Jesus Christ. Revelation 22.3 No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. You see that? You know what we've been talking about for the past year? God, what God commanded humanity to do? To fill the earth and have dominion over it? What happens in heaven? We will reign forever and ever with our God like we were made to all along. And on that day, every... (laughs) Think about the number of times in the 2,000 years of Christian history this prayer has been prayed. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On that day, every time that prayer has been prayed, God's going to answer it. Why? Because heaven's going to come down to earth. And in that day, God's kingdom will finally fully come. And in that day, his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven because heaven and earth have become one. In Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards says this. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven, to fully enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. These are but shadows. But God is the substance. These are but scattered beams. But God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. See what he's saying? Every pleasure that you've ever had in life, every tiny little thing that has brought you the tiniest sliver of happiness, a good meal, a child's laughter, the loved one, the the relationship with the loved one, every tiny little thing is what? It's the faintest shadow of what is waiting for us with the God who made us in the world that's to come. And it will be lavished upon his children in that day. Shaken, pressed down, shaken together, running over, poured into our laps forever. Why is all this important? Why does all this matter? I'm going to have to skip to the end here. Heaven and hell matter infinitely, of course, because they remind us that the present state of things is not permanent. You look at this world and you, you know that something's not right. That sense that's in you that knows that something's not right I would argue it's quite simple why you feel that way. 
because it was put in there by God. Because deep down you know it's not right. Why? Because you can still feel the faint, you can still hear the faint echo of Eden in your ears. Deep down you know you were made for a better world. And you can't explain it and you just, you just know it, you just feel it. Heaven and hell remind us that this world is not, the world as it is now is not the way it always will be. But that what we do with our lives now will make an eternal difference then. And so it must change things. I want to read this final passage and we'll be done. 21, Revelation 21, five. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said... Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, listen now. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You hear what you hear what's being said there? To the thirsty I will give this heritage. Do you what is what is the prerequisite of getting into the The heavenly world, the world free from sin, what's the prerequisite? You just have to want it. It's free. You can't earn it. You just have to want it. You have to want it bad enough to go through Christ. You have to want it bad enough to acknowledge that without Christ you can't get there. But that through him you can. That you need the forgiveness of your sins. But that God freely offers it without payment to those who come to him through his son. Saying, for Christ's sake, forgive me, change me, and welcome me. And he will. It's free. To those who want it, those who are thirsty, they will have this heritage. It will be your inheritance from God your father. That he will give to you when the world ends. But if not, if you won't, if you'll continue in your sin, you doing you, there will be payment. There will be price to be paid. God will punish sin. He will punish iniquity. No sin will go unpunished. It will either be punished in Christ on the cross or it will be punished in the person in hell. Pardon is freely offered if you will come to God in Christ. And if you do, Jesus Christ will pick you up and sit you beside him on his throne. And we will reign with him forever. I'm going to close with this. C.S. Lewis wrote a famous series called The Chronicles of Narnia. It's It's a clear parable about Christianity. And in The Chronicles of Narnia, one of the main characters is, is the character who represents Jesus in the stories. And his name is Aslan, the lion. And in the very last book of the series of the Chronicles of Narnia, this is what Lewis writes. He says, and it says, quote, 
And as he spoke, that is, as Aslan the lion, as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's heaven. That's that's forever with our God. I want to see you there. And you can come by turning from your sins and trusting in the beloved Son of God. And in Him, all the promises of God will be poured out on you. Let's pray. Thank you. For